Hello, this is Ron Powell, and you're listening to Fast Forward on the World Transform. This program presents ongoing conversations with thought leaders who are shaping our future through new ideas and new technology. In this edition of Fast Forward, Christine Peterson, co-founder of the Foresight Institute, talks with our hosts, Phil Bowermaster and Stephen Gordon, about our ongoing work exploring and educating the public about powerful new technologies, including nanotech-related technologies. Are we witnessing the dawn of a new industrial revolution? If so, how will it impact the economy, the environment, and our day-to-day lives? Let's explore the future begins right now. Live to see it, friends, and welcome to the World Transform. I'm Phil Bowermaster, and I'm pleased to introduce our very special guest for today's program, Christine Peterson. Christine Peterson writes, lectures, and briefs the media on world-transforming technologies. She is the co-founder and former president of Foresight Institute, the leading nanotech public interest group. Foresight educates the public, the technical community, and policymakers on nanotechnology and its long-term effects. Christine serves on the advisory board of the Machine Intelligent Research Institute and has served on California's Blue Ribbon Task Force on Nanotechnology and the Editorial Advisory Board of NASA's Nanotech Briefs. She has directed numerous Foresight Conferences on Molecular Nanotechnology, organized Foresight Institute Feynman Prizes, and shared Foresight Vision Weekends, which we're going to be talking about in just a moment. Christine is also noted for her work in educating the public about life extension technology, talking about artificial intelligence, space exploration and settlement, and alternative technology-driven approaches to protecting the environment. She is a true technology pioneer and visionary and early participant in the open source software movement. And when I say early participant, I mean she came up with the name open source. She is a longtime friend of the world transformed and its earlier incarnations. Christine Peterson, welcome to Fast Forward. Oh, it's great to be back, Phil. It's great to have you with us. We also have with us today in the virtual studio, as always, my co-futurist and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Stephen, why don't you kick things off for us? Christine, I wanted to ask you, when people say the word nanotechnology, often they mean different things. What does the Foresight Institute mean? Well, you know, what we have learned, Stephen, is that it's not a good idea to argue with the U.S. federal government about what the word nanotechnology means. <laughs> or anything else. <laughs> what right. did They, they what have did they their mean? definition. Um, their okay. definition is science and technology occurring on the scale between 1 and 100 nanometers. And so this is the definition that they used when they launched the National Nanotechnology Initiative, a billion-dollar-per-year initiative. And so that's the definition, regardless of what anybody else thinks, now that's the definition, and you don't argue with the U.S. federal government or a billion dollars a year. So um, I think what you're trying to get at with your question is, is that the type of nanotechnology that Foresight is interested in? And I'd have to say yes. And so 
we are we are focused on a subset of that extremely broad category. We are more interested in the type of nanotechnology that has atomic precision. In other words, where molecular machinery can build uh, structures that have every atom in a, an assigned designed location. So we are interested in almost the ultimate nanotechnology, atomically precise nanotech. You know, there's been this long history of skepticism and debate about the idea of molecular assembly. And even as recently as the past two or three years, we've seen folks who want to establish themselves as kind of the hip young futurists. They'll make these disparaging remarks about what they call Drexlerian nanotechnology. Then about a year ago, the committee awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry to three scientists for their work in building molecular machines. And just a few weeks ago, Stephen and I talked about this really exciting work being done at the University of Manchester, where they claim to have developed the world's first molecular robot capable of performing basic tasks, including building other molecules. So is there any room left for debate about whether nanotechnology, the kind of nanotechnology espoused by the Foresight Institute, is real? Yeah, I would say last year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry for Molecular Machines really put an end to that position. Um, yes. For many years, starting back in the 1980s when Foresight was founded, uh, there were serious discussions by serious scientists who found the concept of atomic precision, building with atomic precision, they were skeptical. And it's not surprising. You know, new ideas always have some skepticism attached. It's a good thing that some people are skeptical. There's a, there's a role to play there, and that's a good thing. However, we were able to persuade a wide variety of folks starting back in the 80s based on scientific theory. So some folks, some scientists, were able to understand that if you look at the theory, if you look at our understanding of science as, as we best understood at the time, that atomic precision was, in fact, possible. But other folks don't come on board until there's an experiment. They want to, they, they're from Missouri. They said it's a show-me state, right? They, they want to be shown. They don't want to just see equations, no matter how much we all may love equations, there will be folks who want to be shown, and that's, that's understandable. There's a role for that. Uh, but now with this Nobel Prize last year, I really hope we're done with that and we can move on from there. Let's hope. Absolutely. It's been a long road going back to the debates that occurred, I think, first on the pages of Scientific American and then the chemical abstracts talking about between Richard Smalley and Eric Drexler talking about whether this kind of nanotechnology would ever be possible to the present day. I think one of the things that makes that interesting is the story sort of begins and ends with a Nobel Prize, doesn't it? It's, everyone says, oh, Richard Smalley, Nobel laureate. He won the Nobel Prize for being a nanotechnologist. And now another Nobel Prize comes along and settles the matter once and for all. It does. And of course, then we can also think back to Richard Feynman back in 59, who predicted atomic precision that early. So, you know, it is, it's Nobel Prizes left and right here. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the implications of this kind of technology. If we're talking about atomically precise manufacturing, Ron talked in terms of an, the next industrial revolution when he introduced us. We know that the original industrial revolution completely transformed society. 
socially, politically, economically. Now, how is a world where atomically precise manufacturing has become the norm, how is it going to be different from the world we live in today? I think it's going to be quite different. For example, just to take one area, some of us have always been fans of the space program, space transportation, eventually space settlement, you know, having industry in space, having people living in space. But it's still so expensive. Even with the wonderful work being done by the new private entrepreneurs, it's still an expensive proposition. So one of the uh, problems with space is that launching things is expensive. And so what you want to do is get the mass down. You want to get the, the mass as low as possible for what you need to lift off the face of the earth. To do that, you need super strong materials. Right. So with this type of atomically precise nanotechnology, you can make these super strong materials that will enable, for example, space vehicles to be much, much, much lighter. That means they need less fuel. Uh, and so the whole proposition becomes much more affordable, bringing the space frontier into our, into our grasp, making that actually possible, which for some of us, you know, we, we grew up with the, you know, the moon launches and we still remember those wonderful days. And then it kind of stalled out. So the challenge is we have to find a way to get the cost down. That is the key. And I think with nanotechnology of, of this type, the atomically precise type, we'll be able to get those costs down very far and finally bring that space frontier into our grasp. That is such a compelling vision, I think, this technology to support being able to really make those next steps into space, which we have done to a certain extent using the technology that we have available. But I think it's very telling that we see a much brighter future in space and a much more complete fulfillment of the vision that we've had about space based on being able to use these kinds of technologies. What other major impacts will you see nanotechnology having in other fields? Well, I'd have to say, speaking again as one of the boomer generations, probably the application I'm personally most excited about in terms of its impact on me, myself, would be advances in medicine. In particular, uh, with a technology of this type where you actually are getting down to the level of individual molecules, being able to, for example, repair DNA, do repair within the cells, for example, now, with those tools, we can start to say, hey, how about aging? Do we really need to have these aging processes? Because all of these degenerative diseases that older people have, whether it's cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all the dementias, COPD, you name it, any disease for which the frequency increases with age, which, as you know, is almost all of them, all of those diseases become something that we can, we can tackle with tools that work at the molecular level. So you start to say, wow, the frailty, the degeneration we see in older people, the memory, the memory issues, the cognitive difficulties, all of those are things that we could actually tackle medically with these new tools. So if that is the case, then does the process of aging really happen the same way as it does today? You know, we have a certain lifespan. The human lifespan hasn't really changed. The maximum human lifespan hasn't really changed 
since the dawn of time. Our average lifespan has increased, and that's great, but the maximum really hasn't changed. So the question becomes, wow, can we increase that maximum? And if we can break through that barrier, how long will human beings live? And it turns out it's quite long. You got a number for us? Well, you can say, uh, let's say that people do not suffer from diseases. But, of course, we're not immortal, right? And you say, what is, if you, if you get rid of disease and look only at other causes of death, whether it's wars or accidents or suicide or whatever it is, what is the human lifespan at that point? And I never did that calculation myself, but from Aubrey de Grey, who is a prominent longevity promoter, his number, if I recall correctly, was 10,000 years. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. I could I could do with 10,000 years, I think. I could go I could totally go for that. I have a If you saw my to-do list, you would realize <laughs> I need 10,000. You need every you need every bit of that time, and don't not you? To, not to mention if you just go into a library, how are we ever going to have time to read all these books? Right. So yeah. we we need 10,000 years. Christine, I'm just finding that I'm getting halfway decent at my job. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm well into my middle years, you know, and uh, exactly. I need more time. I'm a boomer, and I feel I'm only just now starting to figure out what's going on and being able to make a contribution. Right. So it's, you know, I have an obligation to stick around now and get some work done. Absolutely. Well, let me ask a kind of a question that at the intersection of several things you've been involved in. The open source movement, do you anticipate open source as being a key mover to enable AI and our nanotech? Do you see it as being involved? Well, it's definitely involved, and let's look at let's look at nanotech first. So these days, we all know, I think, that just about any very advanced technology has a software component. In the case of nanotechnology and molecular machinery, there's a huge, huge component, uh, first of modeling, using software to model what you want to build, uh, using software to model how to build it. So... The question is, will this software be open source and available and easily editable and changeable by the user, or will it be proprietary? And right now we have a mix. There's a mix out there of the of who's using what, is it open, is it proprietary? And I think there always will be proprietary software, and that's fine. Not all software has to be open source, but I think that nanotech will be sped up faster if we have a good open source design community that is able to share their designs, is able to share the design software, and the software will improve faster if people are able to get at the source code and see what's going on, which with proprietary code, you, you can't see. You just don't know what it's doing under, under the hood. So, yeah, I think open source software has a key role to play in nanotechnology, and it, I think there, I think there is significant open source software out there in that for design, but we need much better software. It's a it's a big challenge and that's an area where either either government research budgets could be applied or philanthropy, foundation research budgets could be applied. Um, government, at least in the US, doesn't not fund software enough. This is a big, big problem that we have and it's it's ridiculous. Here we are in the 21st century, and the U.S. federal government has a bias against funding software. You know, that's a recipe for falling behind. So that's something folks in, uh, 
in government need to think harder about. You know, it's interesting when you think about these ideas that have taken some folks a little bit of time to get used to. Christine, you you get to be associated with quite a few of those, right? Nanotechnology itself, we already mentioned. Open source is another one that I think a lot of people were very skeptical about that when it first showed up. And you look at the huge role it's played in the market, in big data over the last few years. It's kind of the major driver for how companies are shifting their whole data infrastructure. They're, they're doing it uh, by and large on, on open source software. And before that, there were, there were open source databases that were, that were making a big difference. And preparing for this show, Stephen mentioned artificial intelligence. I was looking at deep learning, just what all the different options are available for, for doing deep learning. I, I just looked on Wikipedia. And if you check that out, there's this big table of all the different tools that are available. And the field that says how you license it, there's a couple of them that say proprietary. And all the rest of them are some, some flavor of open source. So it seems like the whole artificial intelligence field is kind of being driven by currently by open source software. I wonder if that has anything to do with the emphasis that Foresight is currently placing on artificial intelligence. You have you have quite a bit going on around AI. Is Maybe talk a little bit about the link between nanotechnology and artificial intelligence. Let's see. So there used to be debates and still are debates about which technology would arrive first. Would it be nanotechnology first, which would then drive artificial intelligence faster? Or would artificial intelligence arrive first? And by that, I mean strong AI or artificial general intelligence. I mean very powerful artificial intelligence. Would that arrive first, and then would that drive nanotech faster? So, and these were big debates in the old days. I think right at this moment, if you were to have all those debaters place a bet, I think a lot of them would say, wow, I think AI is moving faster, especially since in order to have AI powerful enough to speed up nanotechnology, you don't need artificial general intelligence. You can use earlier versions of AI to speed up nanotech. So currently, it looks like it'll be AI speeding nanotechnology. Regarding whether it's open source or not, there is an organization, OpenAI, that is dedicated to making artificial intelligence open. Um, and I believe you're, you're right that there's a lot of open source AI-related software. But when we look at the leaders in this space, when we look at Google and IBM and these kinds of giant companies, who really are the leaders currently, as far as I can tell, I don't think their stuff is open source. Um, yeah, what they're doing in-house, that's going to be proprietary, isn't it? It is. Sure. It is. Yeah. And, and they, I think, are the leaders. And so even though there's, there's a lot of open source AI software out there, I think the very best stuff is not available and, and probably will not go, it's not going to be available to the rest of us. So I'm not exactly sure what that means for who gets to control powerful artificial intelligence. Is it is it Google? Is it IBM? Uh, I, I think it's probably, right now, it doesn't look like whoever gets to artificial general intelligence is going to do it in an open source fashion. Right at this moment, that's not how it looks. Yeah, that's true. Certainly, the big push coming from places like China for example, would lead us to expect that if they get there first, that's not going to be anything like open source, is it? I really don't think so. You know, actually, none of the leaders 
seem to be seem to be going the open source route. Now, OpenAI is a is a prominent organization, but I don't think uh, you know I don't think they can compete with Google and I- IBM in China, as far as I know. So. Yeah, right now it's looking like it's going to be proprietary. Well, I'm going to take a very optimistic view on this one and just say as these tools, the ones that I was referring to, become more widespread and widely available, we might see something like what happened in the big data world where the open source technology simply became the standard and everyone had to had to start working with it. I hope so anyway. And if that's the case, it's possible that when we get to AGI, it will be through through efforts that occur on open source software, but I I, I take your point that there's a lot of reason to to be skeptical that that will happen. Well, it could be as it becomes clear that how powerful this is going to be, it could be that people will wake up and say, hey, we we don't want this to be proprietary. And certainly that foresight's view and what we're promoting is a more open model. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. But that's the kind of thing that's being debated right now, and not just at Foresight, but at all of the artificial intelligence organizations saying, what's the safer pathway, open or closed? Seems like there's a lot of risk either way, isn't there? There is. There is. There's no risk-free option here. This is a, a very powerful technology, and as I'm sure that your listeners know very well at this point, powerful technologies can be abused. That's how it is. Seems to me the riskiest thing is to ignore it. That's right. That's right. But I think AI is getting a decent amount of attention, so that hopefully won't happen. I wanted to ask, how is Foresight Institute supporting the development of AI? Our main focus is not necessarily on speeding up AI because we already have giant companies like Google and IBM and and governments also pushing the technology forward, and a really significant amount of money is going into this now. So Foresight, as a nonprofit, our role is not necessarily to try to speed up the development. It's more a question of of looking at these broader issues, which you, you guys just brought up, which are questions like, should it be open? Should it be, what's safer, open versus closed? How do we help guide the development? And Foresight has a particular unique position, one that we've just brought into the uh, community on the debate about artificial intelligence safety, and that is the emphasis on computer security. Now, it's not that no one in that field was looking. They're, you know, we're all aware of how can, how can anyone in today's modern society not realize that computer security is a problem. We keep hearing about these massive data breaches, even from, from the federal government. So we're all aware, everybody knows that computer security is an issue, but the interaction between that problem, that ongoing problem, and that problem that's worsening every year, how does that interact with AI? The artificial intelligence community is often talking about, well, you know, we want to develop reliable, safe artificial intelligence code, but if the operating system underneath that code is insecure, which they virtually all are now, then it doesn't matter how secure your code is onto that resting on top of that operating system. You are vulnerable. You can't trust computer code that is running on an unreliable operating system. And that's where we are today. Virtually all of our operating systems, certainly all the commercial ones, are insecure. So we're in a bad situation. 
it's a bad situation right now, and it's certainly a terrible situation to be in when there's powerful artificial intelligence. So that's the unique perspective or the emphasis that Foresight is bringing to this AI safety debate, saying, hey, we already have a serious computer security problem. We all know that. And the AI angle is that we absolutely have to fix this problem fast before strong AI arrives. Otherwise, the strong AI, whoever develops it, will have no trouble at all just sucking up all the computing power on the planet. Wow. Talk about a breach, huh? That's, uh... Right. It's a breach. So you can imagine something smart enough out there to explore all the security holes that are in current software. And, and all, virtually all current software has security holes. That's why we continually get these security updates on our computers, right? We all get these things all the time. That's because they are continually, frantically patching these holes in the software, these security holes. So they're riddled with security holes. So we have a deadline. We don't know what the deadline is. We don't have that number. We can debate the number, and, and the folks in this community do debate it. Foresight recently had a workshop specifically on that. But the earliest numbers we've heard, credible numbers from serious technical people whose opinions should be listened to, the earliest of those range of estimates that we hear is seven years. So that's a little time to work with, but not much. Oh, it's really yeah. not much. I mean, if you... you know, one development are, cycle or something, it's not much, is it? It is not much, especially since what we're talking about is replacing operating systems of all the computers on the planet. Okay, well, with just a few minutes left, I should mention that although this is a standalone fast-forward podcast, it is also part of a series that the World Transformed is doing with the Foresight Institute, where we're talking in greater depth about some of these issues. And we're also talking about the upcoming Foresight Vision Weekend. Christine, can you give us some details on that event? What will happen? Who should attend? Let's start with the last one. In terms of who should attend, anyone who has been listening to your podcast uh, and is interested in technology and the future, how these play together, business angles, you know, business opportunities involved in those, as well as bigger societal issues. All of these topics are covered in December 2nd and 3rd in San Francisco. So we get a wide mix of folks. It's a highly intelligent audience. I'm guessing your listenership is the same kind of folk. People are interested in ideas, especially ideas involving science, technology, business, and the future, how these all play together. And We'll be tackling some of the same topics we talked about today, certainly artificial intelligence. We'll be doing quite a bit about the blockchain, which we have not had a chance to talk about on this show. I hope we do at the next one because hopefully your readers are aware the blockchain is going to be absolutely revolutionary. Possibly, will it be as revolutionary as the Internet? Some people think it will be. I spent all day yesterday at a blockchain conference, and it's it's very powerful stuff. We keep talking about how we need to do a blockchain show. So You have to. You must do a blockchain show. Absolutely. I can give you a name, a wonderful speaker who will do a great job for you. Okay, so, terrific. We'll talk about that offline. Fantastic. Absolutely. And so other topics we'll be covering at the Vision Weekend are life extension and longevity, and also general long-term thinking. You look out at the world, say, how are things going? How is technology affecting us? One big issue is social media. You know, this is getting to be a bigger, bigger, more powerful thing. It's having major political impact, social media at this point, huge, huge political impact. 
and not always for the best. So I'm based here in Silicon Valley, which is where these technologies are coming from. And folks here are starting to say, you know, this is not necessarily going very well. So how can we help guide social media to be more socially positive rather than socially negative, both in the political sphere and in terms of apparently it's causing depression among our young people, these kinds of problems. So those are those are some of the topics we'll be looking at. And uh, of course, the audience plays a major role. The Sunday is breakouts and um, everyone who attends is welcome to propose their own their own breakout. Uh, and lead a discussion on a topic of their own choice. So if your listeners have a burning issue they want discussed, this is their opportunity to get that thing discussed. This is your chance to talk about it to an amazing group of people, too. So it's a wonderful event. I can't speak highly enough for the Foresight Vision Weekend. And follow the links here, folks. Go to foresight.org and check it out. I think it's well worth your time. If you're interested in these kinds of topics, it's something you want to look into. Great. Oh, I, I hope to see as many of your listeners as possible because this is where we try to shape the future. And I know your listeners are some of the most informed folks on these topics because you've been teaching them and bringing them experts on these topics for years. Well, thanks for those kind words, Christine. We certainly have tried. This sounds like a great opportunity to learn more and connect with some truly amazing people. Christine, best of luck with the Vision Weekend and with all your fascinating endeavors. And thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's been a blast as always, guys, and I hope to talk with you again soon because I think we're doing another show soon. Absolutely. We look forward to doing two more shows with you this week and taking a deeper look at some of these issues. Well, that is going to have to do it for this edition of Fast Forward on the World Transformed. My thanks once again to Christine Peterson for being with us, and thank you all for listening. We hope you will join us again as we continue to explore a future that is unfolding before us in unexpected ways and at a breathtaking pace. And until next time, live to see it. To learn more about Christine Peterson and the Foresight Institute, visit foresight.org. To learn more about this program and to hear the other two shows in this three-part series, visit worldtransform.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.